All right. So I know we've been asked over the years how we come up with the episodes for the podcast. Right? Because as I've often joked, yes, we have been doing this now for three years straight. This is episode 162 after all. But every time people ask, I'm like, I don't think there's a shortage of topics for us to discuss every week for, oh, say the next decade or so. Right, Misasha? Exactly. So here's a little insight into how we select topics. So sometimes we get episode ideas from books we've read. Sometimes we get episode ideas from news stories, or sometimes we get pitched directly from publicists. And each time I think we're secretly thrilled that we're now established enough to have people actually asking to come on our show. It's still kind of a new feeling for me. It's amazing. Right? And sometimes we talk to personal connections. But this episode that we're about to get into now was none of those things. This episode was primarily inspired by a webinar about banned books that featured Nicole Hannah-Jones, Nick Stone, and Dr. Ibram X. Kendi in conversation with Dr. Emily Knox. And just in case there was any doubt out there, it was fire. But it also really made me and us think about CRT, banned books, and what's the link between the two? And so in today's episode, we answer several questions. First, what is CRT or critical race theory? And what is it not? And by the way, you're getting the breakdown from the mind of a Columbia Law School educated lawyer, namely me, Sasha. (laughs) So it's the real deal in a way that you'll be able to understand, right? Second, we're also going to talk about where we are seeing the most restrictions around school curriculum, including banned books. And third, why banning books and being anti-history hurts all of us. P.S. This is really relevant to all of you because these things are happening in many, many states around the country. So importantly, we'll be discussing some practical ways you can help stem this harmful tide. And so you'll want to listen until the very end. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that helps white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism. And we are your biracial Japanese and white hosts, Sarah and Misasha. So let's kick things off with a huge question. Misasha, what exactly is critical race theory or CRT? All right. So I had to go to a non-legal source to get a English answer. Oh, you're going to human speak to us. Oh, yay. Yes. All right. So I went to Education Week. And according to Education Week, critical race theory is an academic concept that is more than 40 years old. The core idea of critical race theory is that race is a social construct, right? So race is something that has been made up. And that racism is not merely the product of individual bias or prejudice, but it's also something that's embedded in legal systems and in policies. The basic tenets of CRT or critical race theory emerged out of a framework for legal analysis And that was in the late 1970s and early 1980s, created by legal scholars Derek Bell, Kimberly Crenshaw, and Richard Delgado, among others. Okay. So it's a structural thing, not an individual bias, this sort of stuff. Okay. So what is one example of CRT in action so that people listening might understand more fully how this shows up in society? All right. So I've got two. The first is redlining. So if you remember, and as we've talked about on the podcast in the 1930s, government officials literally drew lines around areas deemed poor financial risks, often explicitly due to the racial composition of the people who lived in those areas, right? And then banks subsequently refused to offer mortgages to Black people in those areas. And today, so that was in the 1930s, today those same patterns of discrimination live on through facially race-blind policies, like single-family zoning that prevents the building of affordable housing in, you know, fairly advantaged majority white neighborhoods, and thus really hurts racial desegregation efforts. All right, so another example that's maybe more personal, as William and Mary Law School professor Vivian Hamilton notes, has to do with employment. And specifically, she says, an employer faced with identical resumes will be more likely to pass over a resume of an applicant with a black sounding name. Whereas again, an identical resume of an applicant with a white sounding name is more likely to be granted an interview. And she goes on to say that the employer in this example may not have malicious or negative intent, but she thinks that what we should take away from this example is that people are influenced in a number of ways. Right. And so as the American Bar Association, which is an organization for lawyers, noted, 
CRT is also important because not only, or not only because of the concept that race is a social construct, but it also really rejects, you know, sort of that, the popular understanding about racism. You know, you've probably heard some of them, like, you know, that racism is really just about a few, quote, bad apples, you know, or bad actors. CRT recognizes that racism is really something that has been codified in law and that is embedded in structures and woven into public policy. And it, so it really goes and stands against claims of meritocracy, right? Or that, you know, we're colorblind or that colorblindness exists even. CRT recognizes that it is the systemic nature of racism that really has the primary responsibility for continuing to reproduce racial inequality. I love understanding that, that it takes it out of just one or two people who believe, you know, that the person who looks like that is a certain characteristic, but it really talks about how it's in our systems, in our country, in our corporations. You know, one other thing that's really important about CRT, and I also think that it's something that we can fundamentally agree on as human beings who care about other human beings, is that it also embraces the relevance of people's everyday lives to these theories to the scholarship, right? It's not just about studies. It, it also includes embracing the lived experiences of people of color, including those preserved through storytelling. And it really rejects research that is deficit informed, that excludes the epistemologies of people of color. And because one listener jokingly told me they sometimes have to reach for a dictionary during some of our episodes, and because I also had to go look it up to refresh my memory, epistemology is the theory of knowledge especially with regard to its methods, validity, and scope. So epistemology is the investigation of what distinguishes justified belief from opinion, right? So notably also CRT says that racism is a part of everyday life. So people, white or non-white, who don't intend to be racist can nevertheless make choices that fuel racism. I think that's a really important point. And Going back to what I said just a minute ago, do you know what's important about the fact that the American Bar Association weighed in on what CRT is? It's because CRT is a legal theory. Let me say it again, like louder for the people in the back. CRT is a legal theory that is taught in some, not all, law schools. Again, law schools. CRT is not being taught at any of your kids' schools. So how do I know that? All right, well, first of all, I'm a lawyer, which for some people probably automatically disqualifies me from really saying anything about anything. But I can tell you through personal experience that I barely learned about CRT while in law school, and that was really only because I sought that out. I definitely did not learn about that in any way prior you know, to that point in law school, except for one semester in college when I was specifically studying theory around how our country was formed and structured. Okay, and, you know, asterisk that because I was 19 when I was doing that studying. I wasn't seven, let's say. I think that's such an important point for people to hear because we have seen such a twisting of this in our media coverage around CRT and the policy changes that are happening in our school systems around the country in various states right now. Like it is not taught in K through 12 schools. Period. Yeah. And, you know, critical race theory shows up in education, right? Like the study of education, because CRT scholars look at how policies and practices in K to 12 education contribute to persistent racial inequalities in education, and they advocate for ways to change them, right? And this is according to Education Week. So the CRT scholars who look at how education impacts racial inequalities, look at things like racially segregated schools, and keep in mind the research now shows that schools are about as segregated as they were back in 1970, when if you remember, we talked about this on a podcast episode, when court mandating school desegregated busing started, right? They also look at the underfunding of majority black and Latino school districts, the disproportionate disciplining of black students, barriers to gifted programs and selective admissions high schools, and curricula that reinforced racist ideas. So that's what they study about education. But, and this is something we really are going to continue to emphasize so that you can hear us and share this with others. It is really, really, really important to note that CRT is not a synonym 
for culturally relevant teaching, which really was sort of a school of thought that emerged in the 1990s. And this teaching approach seeks to affirm students' ethnic and racial backgrounds and is intellectually rigorous. You know, it's related in that one of its aims is to help students identify and critique the causes of social inequality in their own lives. And as one, you know, one teacher educator who was talking about culturally relevant teaching said, the way that we usually see any of this in a classroom is, have I thought about how my black kids feel and made a space for them so that they can be successful? And this is a level that I think it stays at for most teachers. Okay, so as with CRT in general, its popular representation in schools have been far less nuanced. And I think that when you think about the arguments that come up, right, against culturally relevant teaching, you know, is, for example, and the general arguments that come up against the whole concept of talking about race and racism and race as a social construct in schools, you know, can be sort of highlighted by this 2021 poll by the advocacy group Parents Defending Education. And they claim that some schools were teaching that, quote, white people are inherently privileged while black and other people of color are inherently oppressed and victimized. That, quote, achieving a racial justice and equality between racial groups requires discriminating against people based on their whiteness. And, quote, that the United States was founded on racism. You know, thus much of the current debate appears to spring from, not from academic texts, but really from fear among critics that students, and especially white students, will be exposed to supposedly damaging or self-demoralizing ideas. So that is the argument that's being put forth by critics who claim that CRT is being taught in schools. Okay, so let's just pause there for a second. And Sarah, when you hear me say all of that, what comes up for you? So I have this feeling, we talk a lot about the mind-body connection. And right now I have like this bubbling up of like, but like in my, like, I'm doing this motion where I'm like, I have so much to say, because I do think actually you just, when you said, for example, the United States was founded on racism being this pushback that people didn't want to be taught that. I do think the United States was founded on racism. When you consider that it was rich landowning white men who were in power and who wrote into the constitution, the protection of slave property and the power of masters, Right. And I've also heard all these arguments, the misinformation and misuse of the term CRT and, you know, quote, protecting white students from being made to feel uncomfortable. And I think it completely misses the point of seeing the truth, which is that our policies have been written to discriminate against people of color. And all of us can work to see each other as individuals instead of making blanket statements about black people. You know, the Will Smith slap heard around the world comes to mind, where if you saw any people say, well, that made black men look bad. I mean, you really realize the generalizations that were being made. And to flip it, like, did the Unabomber make white men look bad? What about the reality that of the 122 mass shootings in the last several decades, more than half were done by white shooters? And yet does the media position this as, gosh, we better be careful about those white men? And so I guess I might be getting off on a tangent here, but I feel like we can absolutely discuss race and racism and systemic discrimination and not do it with this intent to make white people feel guilty. I feel like people only feel guilty because they're centering themselves in the story yet again, instead of being able to step out of their experience to learn like real history, see systems, think critically and decide what they can do to support their fellow human beings. What is Sasha? What about you? You know, for me, what Nicole Hannah-Jones said at that banned book webinar really rings true when I think about the anti-CRT movement. And that is, we should call it what it is when it comes to K-12 education. And that's really, they're not anti-CRT, they're anti-history. That's so, so powerful. She said it and I was like, oh, of course, because, you know, and let's just put this in context because it should be noted that this debate over what you can and cannot teach in school isn't new. Right In the early and mid 20th century, for example, the concern was about socialism or Marxism. The conservative American Legion, beginning in the 1930s, sought to rid schools of progressive-minded textbooks that encouraged students to consider economic inequality. Two decades later, the John Birch Society raised similar criticism about school materials. And as with you know this anti-CRT, focus, the fear was that students would be somehow harmed by exposure to these ideas. And when you take this specifically to the subject of history, the debates have focused on the balance among patriotism and American exceptionalism on one hand, 
and the country's history of exclusion and violence towards indigenous people and the enslavement of African-Americans on the other, right, between its ideals and practices. And those tensions, right, because those are big, led to the implosion of a 1994 attempt to set national history standards. But, you know, as one historian pointed out, it's in the schools where we see these tensions happen. And to quote this person, it's because they're nervous about broad social things, but they're talking in the language of school and school curriculum. That's the vocabulary, but the actual grammar is anxiety about shifting social power relations. So really what they're focusing on when they're saying things like, I don't think you know we should be talking about how America was founded on racism, they're talking about it in the schools, but what they are really afraid of is that concept out in society as a whole. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. You know, as The Guardian notes, this couldn't be more true right now, because in January, an NBC News poll found that 70 percent of Americans believe the country has become so polarized it can no longer solve major issues facing the country. And as the CEO of PEN America, Suzanne Nossel notes, our population is changing. We're becoming an increasingly pluralistic society along so many different dimensions. And there's this fierce backlash trying to kind of yank it in the other direction with the notion that we're somehow restoring some great path that's been lost. We see that in the efforts to curtail voting rights across the country and to empower legislatures to overrule the will of an increasingly diverse population that go to the polls. And so in that framework, that crusade is increasingly bleeding into education. You know, in the last year, Pan America, which I just mentioned, a nonprofit organization that works to protect the freedom of expression in the United States, they counted, get this, 155 bills introduced in 38 states that would censor what teachers can say or teach in classrooms. In 2022, there has been a steep rise in the introduction of what Pan America calls gag orders. They said, as you know, we've talked about this. I mean, certainly we have behind the scenes. I can't even remember if we talked about it on the air, but Florida's don't say gay bill. It bans discussion of sexuality and gender identity in schools, and it allows parents to file lawsuits against school boards if they believe policies violate the law. So do you need more examples? I got them. Right. All right. Ready? Kansas, I'm coming for you. A bill introduced in the Kansas House of Representatives in February of 2022 would change the state's obscenity law, making it a class B misdemeanor for a teacher to use any material which depicts homosexuality in a classroom. While looming legislation is Arizona would allow parents to sue teachers and school districts for perceived violations of parental rights. So you'd be violating a parent's rights if you talk about the fact that some people are born homosexual. You know, I saw this great thing because I think the thing is that you have to play this out to its extreme, right? If you can't mention sexuality, right, at all, or let's say gender identity, right, then you can't. And I saw this great thing that was circulating on LinkedIn about how then can you use Mr. and Mrs.? You can't. You can't use he or she pronouns. Like, I mean, if you're going to play this out to, because I like to do that, to its most ridiculous thing, right? This one educator, it sort of, and it was may have been satire, may not have been, but was like, so I'm not going to use Mr. or Mrs. anymore in my classroom. I'm not going to use he or she to refer to your kids. They're just going to be they. I'm going to go by MX. You know, everyone's going to go by MX. Like, oh, yeah, you can't do boys and girls sit over here. Right. So where I mean, because let's think about what these laws are really saying and then play them out, because if this is what you want, this is how far it's got to go. Yeah. Well, you certainly would not be able to have what is it usually in fifth grade around the country? You have like the sex ed talks, how our bodies change. Can you even talk about that? Because you're talking about girl parts and boy parts. Right. Right. Or I mean, that's really interesting. You know, I think if you think about where this can take, you're basically creating a culture of fear for anybody who's in the education system. And as we know, as a human being, you know, hey, when you're afraid, are you at your best? Are you performing your best? I know I'm not, right? You need to have, and it is very clear for students, they've done enough studies about that, that you need to have your basic needs of security and safety met in order to be able to learn. So you're creating an environment in the school systems where people are going to not be able to feel that safety to teach and to learn. Because in these schools, you know, Nassau, who I mentioned before, says that these laws serve to hobble our educators and intimidate them in a chilling way. It puts librarians, teachers, principals in a position of having to fear that if they put forward certain ideas, or even if a student puts forward certain ideas and it gets taken up in a classroom discussion, that they may be subject to discipline or punishment or fines. It is silencing people. 
talk about ultimate cancel culture, the phrase that people who are on this side are trying to create for teachers. They're trying to get people to shut up for fear of being canceled. What if a student, what if a kid has a question? Is it just going to be, shh, no, we don't talk about that all over again? I personally have a really big problem with this because it makes me again, question the purpose of public education, right? Is it to do with what it was originally actually intended to do by the Puritans who came up with this notion, which is to teach reading, write, and math, but also core religious values? Is that what we want for our public education system in our country? Or have we come to a new place in the last few hundreds of years with an increasingly diverse country to revisit the purpose of it and make sure that all of our citizens are educated on the diversity that they wouldn't get if they were just educated by their own isolated insular families. And furthermore, like this is the public education system we're talking about. Are the people who are regulating these sending their children to these public education schools or are they participating in the privilege of financial like security and sending their kids to private schools that they pay for that they can teach whatever they want? You know, I think that hypocrisy and lack of integrity is like some of my least favorite values. And I see that happening so clearly in this that it frustrates me because I want to believe in our public education system. I want to believe that we are here to embrace and teach and learn and grow and come together. The schools used to be the center of community and we are absolutely making it crumble. Do you mean like Ted Cruz's daughters who go to a school where there is a racial literacy curriculum, even though he did spend a lot of time asking Katanji Brown Jackson about anti-racist baby? Yeah, maybe like him as an example. Don't worry, we're coming back to Texas later. Yeah, I was like, he, he wasn't on the, t- yeah, we are coming back to Texas. All right. But anyway, you might sense where we're going, right? Where that link is between book bans and CRT. And I really just even want to call it anti-history at this point, because it's not CRT, what we're seeing and what this fight is about. But to put a finer point on it, right, let's shift gears to book bans for a second. According to a new American Library Association report, there were 330 book challenges in the fall of 2021, which is an uptick from the same period in recent years. And that's just in the fall of 2021 that was, you know, sort of cataloged by the ALA. According to the New York Times, in their report last month, parents, activists, school boards, officials, and lawmakers around the country are challenging books at a pace not seen in decades. Viewed in a broader national context, because there are roughly, you know, close to 100,000 public K-12 schools in the United States, these numbers are still, you know, kind of low when we're thinking about a national crisis. But free speech advocates insist that the new campaigns are worth paying attention to and worrying about. And I agree, because if you're seeing the biggest uptick in decades, that signals something. Because we've seen these book bans increase, not just in our country, in other countries, right? Yes, I was just thinking of that. Oh, yeah, we were right there. You know, and the rise of book bans in their view and in our view is the tip of a deeper iceberg, right? A growing movement on the right to use the levers of local and state governance to control teachers and push an ideologically slanted view of what children should learn about American culture, society, and history. And Jeffrey Sachs, who's a professor at Acadia University who tracks free speech and education, says you're seeing really powerful movements underway to constrain expression. It's not about discussing ideas objectively. It's about, to your point, Sarah, not discussing them at all. So the current rise of book challenges is also geographically uneven. And according to Jonathan Friedman, who's the director of free expression and education at PEN America, challenges are less common in blue states than in red ones. But looking purely at national numbers obscure significant trends towards censorship in certain states and communities. And, you know, there's some evidence to support this claim because an NBC investigation in Texas, I mentioned we were coming back to Texas, we'll be back again too. a state that Friedman points to as the epicenter of many of these challenges, found a significant uptick in book challenges near major cities. Records request to nearly 100 school districts in the Houston, Dallas, San Antonio and Austin regions, which is a small sampling of the state's 1200 you know, 50 public school systems, revealed 75 formal requests by parents or community members to ban books from libraries during the first four months of the school year. 75 formal requests. In comparison, only one library book challenge was filed at those districts during the same time period a year earlier. One. A handful of these districts reported more challenges this year than in the past two decades combined. To be sure, these numbers do not tell us what percentage of these challenges were successful. But 
the big percentage increase over previous years is strikingly suggestive. Ah, you know what's odd about this? It doesn't line up with how parents feel about book bans in general. It really smacks of what we've said in the past, Misasha, of how haters are loud and why we all need to use our voice to stand against these trends because this is what's happening. Amid this like whole uptick in efforts to ban books in every state across the country, a new national poll commissioned by the American Library Association shows that seven in 10 voters oppose efforts to remove books from public libraries, including majorities of voters across party lines. Three quarters of parents of public school children, so like almost 75%, express a high degree of confidence in school librarians to make good decisions about which books to make available to children. When asked about specific types of books that have been a focus of local debates, large majorities say for each that they should be available in school libraries on an age-appropriate basis, right? 75% of parents think it's just fine. And yet, what are we seeing happening? So that new poll is the first to approach the issue of book bans through the lenses of public and school libraries. And it also found a near universal high regard for librarians and a recognition of the critical role that public and school libraries play in their communities. So the findings really demonstrate that far from being a partisan issue, book bans are opposed by a large majority of voters of all parties. It's like across the board, people really value libraries and their librarians similar bipartisan support for them with strong majorities of voters voicing confidence in libraries. And, you know, they're really favorable towards librarians. You know, I'm going to give some numbers here, but the large majority of voters, so 71%, oppose efforts to have books removed from their local public libraries, including majorities of Democrats, 75%, Republicans at 70%, and independents at 58%. Most voters and parents hold librarians in high regard, have confidence in their libraries to make good decisions about what books to include in their collections, And they really, really offer books that represent a variety of viewpoints. 90% of voters and parents basically, again, have a favorable opinion of librarians who work in local public libraries and school libraries. And so basically, when they talk about these variety of viewpoints in age-appropriate levels, they include works about the U.S. history that focus on the role of slavery and racism in shaping America today, like the 1619 Project, 84% right? Say that it's okay. Works of literature that use racial slurs like Huckleberry Finn to kill a mockingbird and of mice and men, 82%. Novels for young adults that portray police violence against black people like Ghost Boys and The Hate You Give, 68% say it's okay. Fiction and nonfiction books about lesbian, gay, and transgender individuals like George and This Day in June, 65%. And works of fiction that have sexually explicit content, including scenes of sexual violence like Beloved and Looking for Alaska, 57%. And so the American Library Association president, Patty Wong, says the survey results confirm what we have known and observed, that banning books is widely opposed by most voters and parents. And she continues to say, as a career librarian who began my career in public libraries working with children, I'm thrilled to see that parents have a high degree of confidence in school libraries' decisions about their collections, and very few think that school librarians ignore parent concerns. This truly validates the value and integrity of library professionals at a time when many are feeling burnt out because of accusations made by small but loud groups. Oh, that's so important. And, you know, I want to pause here and talk about books like Huckleberry Finn or Beloved, right, for a moment, because I definitely read those in school. And on that webinar that kicked off this whole episode, really, the panelists talked about why books like these, which contain racial slurs or sexual violence, are so important to not only contextualize that time in history that the writer was writing, but also to understand how we move forward and why those words, what happened in those books, aren't okay today. Because if we have none of those books out there, how do we learn from our mistakes? And to that point, I actually, it just occurred to me, aren't books are ways to learn, right? It's pretty agreed that we can transport ourselves to different worlds and histories and places through the power of books. And yet aren't, would you, I want them to do a survey on this. Would you guess that the people who are working to ban books are the same people who oppose the taking down of statues commemorating Confederate soldiers, for example, or leaders? Like the same argument that we heard about people saying, well, how can we learn about history if we don't have this statue here that you know was in honor of the KKK heads or whatever? But the point is that is 
not an opportunity just to learn it. It was also a rallying point for those who wanted to espouse hate and you were glorifying those views. That's very different than reading about different points of view and, and time periods in a book. And so again, going back to that potential for hypocrisy, again, I don't know for a fact that those are the same people, but it just, the arguments seem backwards and inconsistent in these things that are happening nowadays. Well, yeah. And I think also it's because there's a fundamental sort of lack of understanding, right? It comes back to the larger social discussion and that vocal few whose discomfort over topics that they may have never learned about in school is coming back when they realize that their children might be addressing those very same issues in a way that they never understood. You know, and according to Jeffrey Sachs, again, every single Republican-controlled state where the legislature is currently in session is considering a new educational gag order bill. Many even target university education, which traditionally enjoys much wider sort of latitude to discuss politically controversial ideas. Because remember, university, right, you're at a different age. You know, it's too easy or too early, rather, to judge the campaign's effects yet. But all the activity offers an instructive window into where the energy on the American right is today. And, you know, to talk about that hypocrisy, Sarah, a conservative movement that once claimed to stand for limited government, I mean, that was really sort of the crux of this movement, is increasingly embracing the coercive use of law to really sort of reshape a culture it fears it is lost. So that is a huge, you know, like, how do you sort of reason those two together, right? You want very little government control, but yet you would like the government to step in and say like, no, we're not going to teach this. You know, we need to make it make sense, right? So it's, it can't be both. This is not those things where two truths can be true at the same time. So, you know, now that we're starting to have an understanding of book bans, let's turn back to that anti-CRT, that anti-history movement, because hopefully by now you're starting to see how these are linked together. Generally speaking, the aim of these anti-CRT bills is to regulate what teachers can do in classrooms. And they often prohibit a set of loosely defined concepts relating to race from being taught and on occasion specifically singling out certain texts, right? Like the 1619 Project, which so many people didn't have a problem with. Frequently, this anti-CRT bills aim to prohibit certain kinds of classroom activities that conservatives have been fixated on, like you know, privilege walks, for example, mm -hmm. where students form a line and are asked to take a step forward every time the teacher mentions a form of social advantage that applies to them, you know, setting aside how you feel about them because privilege walks have their detractors. It's not clear how prevalent such exercises are in K-12 schools to begin with. Sometimes, as in Idaho's bill on this, the first ban passed in the nation, they merely prevent teachers from compelling a student to affirm certain ideas about race. And I mean, that is super vague. So, mm -hmm. right. So that's the problem with vagueness. How are you going to prove that in a court of law or when there's a lawsuit? I mean, it just depends then on the prejudices of the judges then, right? Well, but also that could be huge, right? When you don't have specific language, what does affirm certain ideas about race mean? Right. That could encompass so much more. And that's why vaguely written bills sometimes really work in people's favor if you're trying to like the people who are, you know, submitting them. So as opposed to book challenges, which are sort of bottom-up censorship, right, with parents and local activists being the ones who are leading the charge across school districts, these anti-CRT bans are top-down, which is state-level rules, right, often influenced by model legislation drafted by national conservative groups. Meaning, in other words, you have one large national group that's like, here's what we're going to say about this. This is the policy. And they push it out for individual states to take up and use. You know, yet while... There are different groups and different political actors who may be pushing these two separate things. Both types of campaigns are fueled by the same set of political ideas and circumstances. So in order to demonstrate this, let's turn back to Texas again. Oh, Texas. I know. Uh, to detail how anti-CRT bans and book bans often go hand in hand. All right. So. In Texas, book challenges began gathering steam in school districts in late 2020 and er, in the first half of 2021. In September 2021, the State House passed its first critical race theory ban, which is a bill that required teachers to present, and I can't even say this without sort of eye rolling. I don't know, feeling away about it. Quote, diverse and contending perspectives without giving deference to anyone end quote, in any discussion of, quote, currently controversial issues of public policy or social affairs. Obviously, 
as we just discussed, this loose language has had predictably perverse consequences. And I think if you think back to the news cycles then, one school district told teachers that if you have a book on the Holocaust in your classroom library, you make sure to have one that has an opposing, that has other, like, viewpoint, that has other perspectives. Uh, what? Right? Like, what is that other perspective? I wow. know. Are there even a book about, I mean, yes, there are, but like, you don't want your kids to be exposed. Oh my gosh. Like it didn't happen or, oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. So that the Texas law does not have explicit provisions on classroom libraries. This illustrates the problem. This broad warning characteristic of many of these bills nationwide, you know, really just creates fear and overreaction among teachers, librarians, and administrators. Cause you're afraid, like, you don't know how broad this goes because that is super vague. So do you want to err on the side of, you know, getting in trouble or do you want to err on the side of safety? And then you are at stake as the teacher or the librarian or the administrator. All right. So that was September. In October of 2021, Republican State Representative Matt Krause sent a letter to school districts detailing a list of 850 books that he believed quote, might make students feel discomfort, guilt, anguish, or any other form of psychological distress because of their race or sex. Well, wait, okay. But can we just pause for a moment and say, what about the kids who are transgender, who are only reading about characters that aren't? Wouldn't that make them feel uncomfortable? But, oh, we're not talking about them. Yeah, or kids who are any other color besides white, who are only reading about white kids or maybe talking animals, like, you know, probably would make you feel uncomfortable to not be shown in any books anywhere. Sorry for the sarcasm there, folks. But uh, anyway. Well, so let's talk about, you know, what was on that list, right? Examples included Ta-Nehisi Coates' Between the World and Me, an Amnesty International adaptation of the UN Declaration of Human Rights. Wait, what? Because yeah, I mean, that might make people, right? Okay, so this is how, I mean, 850 things, right? It's a lot of things. And a picture book entitled Pink is a girl color and other silly things people say. That book made the list. So Krause's letter appears to have successfully prompted several book removals in Texas schools. All right, so that was October. In November 2021, Governor Greg Abbott ordered the Texas Education Agency, the Texas State Library and Archives Commission, and the Texas State Board of Education to, quote, immediately develop statewide standards to prevent the presence of pornography and other obscene content in Texas public schools. So while that might seem super vague or, you know, like maybe, ooh, maybe even that's a good idea because you don't want pornography in schools, let's say, many saw it as coded language targeting literature that contained frank discussion of sexuality or LGBTQ identity. And according to Brandon Rottenhaus, a political scientist at the University of Houston, the fact that this is labeled as pornography is misleading. And that's really important. It's clear that this is politically motivated. All right, so that was November. Then in December, and finally, the State House passed yet another CRT ban. The new bill, notably, did not fix the vagueness in the first one that gave rise to an educator bullsizing the Holocaust. Still ridiculous, still outrageous, but did contain new regulations on curriculum, like an explicit ban, you know, regarding about students reading the 1619 Project. So that was now explicitly planned. And to be clear, like while we just went through a whole, you know, fall 2021 in Texas, it's not just Texas. It's at least, Sarah, what you were saying earlier, 35 other states that are enacting some form of legislation around this or have it proposed. And, you know, if you're sitting and listening to this, do you know what's going on in your state? Because so we have the book bans, we have the anti-CRT bans, and there is a third form of bans that is happening currently that Jeffrey Sachs has been tracking and calling educational transparency provisions, which are being proposed in 2022 legislative sessions. The phrase, I mean, if you hear it, educational transparency sounds great, right? Because who's against transparency? And, you know, many of the transparency provisions, including an influential model written by the Goldwater Institute, merely require schools to post their readings on publicly accessible websites. But there are some, right, that are don't seem that bad, but there are some that are way worse. And according to Saxon, Florida, one lawmaker recently introduced legislation that would allow parents to scrutinize video recordings of their children's classrooms for signs of critical race theory. 
<laughs> anyway, I can't. I just... I'm shaking my head because do you have time to do that? No. First of all, as a parent, like, and second of all, like I'm getting all these emails now, right? Like I get this idea of transparency and teachers want, you know, parents to know what they're working on or whatever, but this is my children's education. I don't need to monitor that. I trust the teachers. Right. It's the trust, right? You have to trust the teachers, right? And this, you would like to, right? Trust that your kids are getting the education that you know they need, right? But apparently that's not enough anymore, right? For a small but vocal group, you know, because not just Florida and, you know, another lawmaker in Mississippi, you know, wants to stream classrooms live over the internet. And I think we already lived that in 2020. No, thank you. Right? Yes. And at least two bills in Missouri proposed letting members of the public attend teachers' professional development workshops. You know, but okay, so those were some. One especially disturbing bill, Arizona's HB 2011, goes even further. It amends the state's law requiring parental permission for sex education to cover student participation in LGBTQ clubs. Schools now must, quote, seek consent from parents if a student attempts to join a club involving sexuality, gender, or gender identity. It also requires that schools provide the group's charter to parents as part of the permissions process. I mean, how many times do kids not want, like, have we watched enough videos yet about how difficult it is for people to sometimes come out to their parents? Why should we force kids to have to do that in order to find community? And have we learned, oh my gosh, there was that other study that talked about how for students, how well they feel they belong at school is one of the biggest links to whether they are depressed or not. And so what are you trying to do? Give them not a community at school too? Well, and I totally agree. And as Sachs notes, the transparency bills are designed to surveil or monitor, almost in a big brother sense, what goes on in a school. It's about surveilling these people in a way that makes them vulnerable to bullying and censorship. And I will say one of the things I've heard from parents so consistently is fears around bullying, right? Bullying, cyberbullying, all of that. You are making your child and your children's classmates targets. Like, this is not, you have to make it make sense, right? You cannot be against bullying and for this sort of larger overarching monitoring, like state surveillance almost, that is going to have that exact effect that you're trying to fight against. Mm, my gosh. So Christopher Rufo, a fellow at the conservative Manhattan Institute, made this strategy very explicit in a series of tweets explaining his support that affirms this concern that Sachs has been bringing up. And he wrote, with curriculum transparency, every parent in the country can become an investigative reporter, which is exactly what no parent should be doing, right? Wants to be. No, um, what could go wrong? Hmm. I know. Hmm, let's think. Right. And I want people to like pause before saying, well, maybe the, you know, the one case of abuse in that a teacher was doing something wrong in a classroom justifies this entire surveillance system? No, I don't think it does because of the negative effects, again, for everybody in our society that this has. Oh boy. Okay. So we've got anti-CRT curriculum plans. We've got book bans and we've got educational transparency bills on the table. And as you heard from my sigh, if this makes you want to throw up your hands and scream and cry all at the same time, we get it. We probably have tried to do that too, but wait, this is where we want you to lean in, crank up the volume a little bit more because there is hope. Because while the anti-CRT group is loud, there are some of us who are also getting loud. So here's a story. As reported by the New York Post until a year ago, Safana Farrell's political activism was limited to maybe the occasional letter to elected officials. And then came her local school board meeting in Orange County, Florida, and an objection raised to Maya Kababi's graphic novel, Gender Queer, a memoir. And the county's decision last fall to remove it from high school shelves. And a quote from this piece says, by winter break, we realized this was happening all over the state and needed to start a project to rally parents to protect access to information and ideas in school. And so along with fellow Orange County parent Jen's cousin, she founded the Florida Freedom to Read Project, which works with existing parent groups statewide on a range of educational issues, including efforts to keep or get back books that have gone under challenge or have been banned. And speaking of Florida parents, right? Keep in mind, remember the mom we interviewed in the episode, The T and LGBTQ? Jamie Jara, whose daughter is transgender and who is a mother-daughter pair, they collectively speak out and speak up 
for her daughter's rights. And they're in Florida going through all of this very personally. You know, her daughter is an elementary school student. So if you want to learn more stories, if this conversation is new to you and you don't have anybody who is transgender in your life, go listen to that episode, follow them on social media, because when you hear the stories, when you hear from a parent perspective, how clear it is that this is just who her daughter is, right? You'll understand that it's not some theory out there. Going back to some more things that the people are doing, you know, the American Civil Liberties Union, PEN America and the NCAC, they've been working with local activists, educators and families around the country, helping them to prepare for meetings, to draft letters and to really mobilize opposition. You know, the CEO of Penguin Random House said that he will personally donate $500,000 for a book defense fund to be run in partnership with PEN. The Hatchet Book Group has announced emergency donations to PEN, the NCAC and the Authors Guild. Legal action has been one strategy, right? Two, because in Missouri, the ACLU filed suit in federal court in mid-February to prevent the Wentzfield School District from removing books like Genderqueer, Nobel Laureate Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye, and Casey Lehman. I looked up his pronunciation and I messed it up. I even looked it up for this particular thing, and I'm sorry for mispronouncing it, but there was a memoir called Heavy. The Civil Liberties Union has also filed open record requests in Tennessee and Montana over book bans and sent a warning letter in Mississippi against what it described as the unconstitutionality of public library book bans. Again, more. Two anti-banning initiatives were launched in Pennsylvania, right? There was an eighth grader who formed a banned book club last fall that began with a reading of George Orwell's Animal Farm, right? Kids can do stuff too, Ask your kids what they want to do. That's pretty incredible. And the Penridge Improvement Project started a drive to purchase books that have been removed from schools, including Leslie Newman's Heather Has Two Mommies, Kim Johnson's This Is My America, and they're placing them, you know, those little small free little libraries in neighborhoods. So they're putting them in small free libraries around the district. There are ways in your community that you can stand up and do something against this. I love that because I think that it's really important to look in your community for these new organizations. And also, you know, as this has been spreading through the country, a change of focus for existing groups. Katie Paris, who is an Ohio resident and the founder of Red, Wine, and Blue, which is a national network of, quote, or politically engaged, quote, PTA mamas and digital divas, which was founded in 2019, said that last year she began receiving calls from members begging for help as debates over critical race theory erupted. So Red, Wine, and Blue started online sessions. It called, I love this, troublemaker training, which includes such guidance as, quote, present a calm face to counter the yelling and shouting and own individual freedom. You can decide what's right for your child, but you don't get to dictate what's right for other families. Love that too. Red Wine and Blue also launched a website that tracks book bans, raised about $65,000 to organize against bans, and is organized or has organized an event in March featuring authors of banned books and parents from communities where books are being challenged. We think education works best when it's parents and teachers working together, says Katie Paris, who has two boys, seven and three. And if you don't want your child to have access to a book, then opt them out. That's fine. You just don't want to just take away that opportunity away from my kids. And, you know, as Sarah, you were mentioning people trying to get books restored, right? Trying to get a book restored is often like other kinds of community activism, letter writing, speeches, attending meetings. And one example of this is Mino McNary is a member of the Round Rock Black Parents Association, which is based around 20 miles from Austin, Texas. The association was founded in 2015 after a black teenager was slammed to the ground by a police officer, but more recently became active in diversifying the curriculum and fighting efforts to remove books. Last year, a parent's objection led to Round Rock School District officials considering whether stamped racism, anti-racism in you by Ibram X. Kendi and Jason Reynolds should be taken off middle school reading lists. And so McNary says, we worked with a middle school teacher who started a petition and that gained a lot of traction with more than 1,000 signatures. The district followed a three-step review process culminating with a school board vote during which McNary and others helped organize people into writing letters, turning up for board meetings, and telling others about the petition. We had children speaking up in favor of this book, even though it was traumatic for some of them to read, McNary says. We had everyone from middle school students to grandmothers and grandfathers stating their reasons why this should remain on the shelves. The board ended up voting in our favor, and the book is still there. So as you're listening to this and hearing all of this, especially these examples of people who have been motivated to act in their communities, what does this mean for all of us? We can 
as we've said time and again, do hard things. We can stand up in our communities and fight for the education that we think our children should have. Because let's not forget, when we ban books or when we selectively teach history, we are sending two messages at the same time. First, to the people whose voices aren't being heard or their stories aren't being told, that their voices and their lives don't matter. And second, to the people whose sole voices are being heard or stories are being told, that everyone else's voices and lives don't matter. That's powerful. So here, I'm going to give you a list, folks. Here are some ways you can help. Find out what books are being taught and read in your kids' classrooms. Find out what bills are active right now in your state. And if you need a list, we've got access to one, so reach out. But educate yourself on what bills are active in your state. Find out, are there books being challenged in your district? Support the educators and the librarians who often find themselves on the front lines of this work without much support, but with a lot of emotion directed at them. What else can you do? You can start petitions. You can join groups. You can go to school board meetings and actually speak up if one of these issues is on the agenda. You can organize your friends, your neighbors, and your community members. You can talk to your kids about this. And importantly, do something loudly. Use your megaphone to get your voice out there. You know, we've been saying for so long that the group of people who are trying to roll back time to a time when America was great for a small portion of the population, and uh, we're talking about white, cisgender, straight men, let's just name it right? Where the people are trying to roll it back when America was great for them and that they're really loud about it. And it makes them seem really, really powerful and imposing. We have to get louder. Share this episode with a friend, a neighbor, a fellow parent, do it for our kids and do it for our collective future. You've been listening to the Dear White Women podcast and are the reason we are among the top one and a half percent of podcasts in the world. You rock! Did you love this episode? Head over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify to leave a rating and review. And it may seem like a pain, but it really helps. And make sure you're following us so you keep getting the newest episodes each Tuesday. Don't forget for all your non-podcast listener friends to tell them about our new book, Dear White Women, Let's Get Uncomfortable Talking About Racism, which you can buy anywhere you buy books, including Amazon, where we would love your reviews. We're on Instagram and Twitter and are upping the game on our emails. And if you love us, send us an email at hello at dearwhitewomen.com to bring us into your company for a webinar or a workshop.